This is Calvary Baltimore's Harford County Bible Study with our senior pastor, Josh Plantholt. Here's Pastor Josh. All right. Matthew 4. We're going to do verses 12 through 16 today, and we're going to look at our cheat sheet in a minute. Uh, and that's just something I did for fun because I love you all. Thank you. We love you too. Obviously, I taught this on Sunday. Uh, 99% of what I'm going to share here is totally new, so no one panic. Um, yeah, yeah, <laughs> me too. Sometimes I'm like, did I say that? That sounds great. <laughs> so, so far in the life of Jesus, we have been shown how the story of Israel has been fulfilled and retold in the life of Jesus. Uh, obviously, in chapter one, we had Father Abraham and many sons. We had the genealogy of Abraham, starting at Father Abraham, and then we move from Je- through Genesis from Abraham to Joseph. We are introduced to Jesus's father, Joseph, who's also a dreamer, like the dreamer Joseph in Genesis. Then we move to chapter two. Herod's the new Pharaoh, just like Pharaoh killed the Hebrew children in the Nile River. So Herod wants to kill the Hebrew children in Bethlehem, and then just like Moses's flight from. Egypt. Uh, Jesus had his flight to Egypt. So now we're introduced to Jesus as the new Moses. Chapter 3, Jesus has a baptism, and it is a type of Red Sea crossing. Uh, Immediately after the waters, where does Jesus go? Into the wilderness, led by the Spirit. Well, who led the Israelites in the wilderness? The pillar of fire, the the cloud of the Spirit. Then we're in chapter 4, where we then are introduced to the temptation of Christ, which almost directly parallels the Israelites' temptations in the wilderness. Uh, and of course, there's a grand reversal. Uh, we see that Jesus is faithful where Israel was faithless. Israel want, grumbled for bread. Satan tried to get Jesus to grumble for bread and turn the stones to bread. Uh, then we see that uh, there was a testing involved. He says, jump off the pinnacle of the temple. And he, the, the angels will not let your foot strike a stone. He says, surely we will not test the Lord our God. Well, there was a testing in the wilderness that we see almost immediately after the bread in the wilderness. And then finally we see that Satan says, if you bow to me, I will give you all the kings of the world and all their ages. And Jesus essentially says, no, (laughs) which was a picture of the golden calf. Jesus reversed the golden calf scenario. Uh, He refused to give in to idol worship. Now, today's passage is of Jesus gathering God's people. So we're going to be introduced to him gathering the apostles and all these people. And as soon as we get to chapter five, where does he lead them? Does anyone remember? He brings them up a mountain. Well, if we're thinking of the wilderness period, Moses calls the assembly of the Israelites to the foot of the mountain where Moses receives the new law, the Ten Commandments. What's Jesus going to do when he gets to the Mount of Beatitudes? He's going to give them a new law in the Sermon on the Mount. Again, Jesus is a new Moses. We're chasing through Israel's history. This is incredible that God's doing this. This is incredible. Um, so something I did, and tell me if this is beneficial when we're done this study. Don't do it now. This is the worst thing I've ever done. <laughs> um, I sat down at my computer, and I really wanted to put, I, I think sometimes it's helpful to understand the structure 
uh, of things. I think it helps us realize when how God categorizes things. He categorizes them for a reason for us. Uh, and so I wanted to look at our, our text today, and this goes beyond where we're at, but you can use this for Sunday too, coming up if you want. And it's the structure of Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 25. And this is all written in something called a chiastic structure. And you want to think about it as a sandwich. You have two pieces of bread, two pieces of cheese, and the star, the meat, dead in the center. Um, <laughs> vegans be warned. And, and the buns parallel each other, right? Bread, bread. However, the top of the bun's a little different than the bottom of the bun if you got a cheeseburger, right? Um, and then you got two different kinds of cheeses, but they're two cheeses. They're similar but different, and then the center's the, the singular, unrepeated focal point. Well, that's how God made a cheeseburger in Matthew 4, 12 through 25. Um, and so what I want to do is I just want to, if you, you see the A, B, C, C, B, A, okay? So let's, let's read the breads here. Now, when they had heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, and notice this is underlined, and this will be for a reason, beyond the Jordan of Galilee, of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and those... And for those dwelling in the region of the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Now let's read the other A, the other burger bun, so to speak. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, that's verse 24, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And verse 25, and great crowds followed him from Galilee, there's the, we see Galilee, Galilee, and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem of Judea, and from beyond. Beyond the Jordan. So we see they share a geography. But what's interesting about this is the, 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 the first A introduces us that a light is coming. How will this light be received is what's very important. Well, the second A tells us if the light's coming beyond the Jordan to Galilee, this, the second A tells us that beyond the Jordan and Galilee, the light was received. And so we see the kingdom's coming, and then the kingdom is revealed and received by these people. And then as we move in a little bit to the bees, verse 17, from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So Jesus preaches the kingdom, the second bee, and he went through all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So now Jesus is teaching in the kingdom. So we have preaching and teaching. And of course, they, you could see how similar these two brackets are, but there's also a difference. There's an escalation. Jesus goes beyond preaching. He then goes on to teaching and healing. And so the arrival of the kingdom is preaching, teaching, and healing. The focal point, and you'll see it in the seas here, verse 18, while walking by the sea, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. 
And he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishes of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. Verse 21. And going on from there, he saw two brothers, the same exact thing. James, the son of Zebedee and John, his brother, and in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. So we have casting nets and now mending nets. And he called them, same as said to them. Immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. That they And the same exact thing. You can see the parallels, can't you? Mm-hmm. When it's laid out like this. And here's the point. The focal point of this whole scene is God chooses his four, his four pillars of his ministry, the four apostles. And these are going to be the guys in his inner circle that, that he starts with here. Um, now, this is the the reason, the reason this is, we can look at the structure and realize that there's a focal point here, is the focal point is the point of emphasis. When the Bible was written, there weren't underlines and bolts when they were doing papyri. So they needed a way to add an exclamation points, so to speak, or for, for the Holy Spirit to highlight something and say, well, this is all good, but look here. <laughs> well, that's what chiastic structures are. It's God's way of saying, I'm putting this in bold. This is the point of the section. This is what this is building to. And here we see Jesus calling the four as the focal point of this whole section of of the kingdom of God arriving. Now, one of the things we have to understand is if they were directly parallel, that that would be great, but they they are different. And the difference is is James, uh, um, Simon, and Andrew, they left their nets. But if you notice James and John, they left their nets and their father. And so they actually left more behind. And that's going to come into play when uh, John is at the foot of the cross. You know, and here he is. He's willing to lose his life for this. So there's, 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 Matthew is introducing us to some key themes about these brothers here. And again, it's all built off of this chiastic structure. And these are through the entire gospel of Matthew. They're all, all through God is showing us where we need to, 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 to put emphasis on things. And I think this is important, back to your point earlier before we started teaching. If I am going to preach on Romans 8 on Sunday, (laughs) or whatever it is, I can say I'm going to preach these 25 verses or however many verses it is. The reality is you can't preach 25 verses completely in depth. Uh, You're really picking what you want to share. But if the Holy Spirit has built the structure of a passage in such a way as saying, no, 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 this is what I mean. This is what's most important. Well, to be even more faithful to the text, you preach the chiasm. You teach the chiasm. You teach the focal point. Your focal point of your teaching is the focal point that God gives in the structure of the teaching. For example, when we get to the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes are built in a chiastic structure. And so, yeah, all the, all the Beatitudes are wonderful and beautiful, but they're framed in such a way to give us certain points of emphasis that we know how to build our lives. Because what do you do when you have a huge haul of information? You know, where do we start? Well, God's kind enough to say, start here. Look here. You want this Matthew 4 is really fascinating? Well, this is how I structure it. This is how I build it. And these are my points of emphasis. And this is how you should think about this passage. Does this make sense? Mm-hmm. Awesome. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So Josh, how do you, is there like a book that? Nope. <laughs> nope. Nope. You got to look at it in Greek. See what words correlate. And sometimes um, 
Come to me, all you who are, or you cannot serve both God and money, for you will love one or hate the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. That's a chiasm. God and money and God and mammon are the same thing. Mm -hmm. What's the focal point of that whole phrase? You'll love one or hate the other. You see, so so all through you you once you start realizing that the Bible's written in circles, not necessarily in a straight line, you start to look for the circles, and then you realize, okay, wait a second here. Why, if they only had X amount of space to write on papyri, why is God saying the same thing twice? You ever notice that you're reading? It's like I just read this. Yeah. Why am I reading this again? And why is it different? And it kind of makes it confusing, right? Because it's like, why is God saying this twice? Is this the same person? (laughs) Is this a new city that's about to get destroyed? But then you real, if you can then look at a picture of it and realize, oh no, it's a giant V and God's making a grand (laughs) point here and the destruction of the cities or the or the don't serve god and money is building to a singular focal point where's your love going to be it's predicated upon what you serve you know it, it creates these points of emphasis so the more that you start to see these circles and and sometimes it's through shared words and sometimes we can see it in english um, but as i mature in this i'm realizing it's more thematic it's in themes and if you, know, if you tried to look for, in, in the paper I gave you, on matching words, you're not going to get far. But when you realize they're the same themes, but with little inverses and differences, you realize, oh my goodness, God's building something here, a narrative that's really fascinating. Um, does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it does. It's like... hey, should I print these out more often? Would that be helpful? Well, no, yes, no, yes. Once you explain it. Okay. Sure. None, you know, I, it was funny because, like, I printed it and I told you I didn't cheat. And <laughs> I, I barely, but I didn't realize, because I didn't glance at it, that there was A, B, C, 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 B, A. Uh-huh. Until you just said that, which now that you've explained it and, you, and you've given the explanation, I can see you, he talks about him coming and he talks about him leaving. Beginning and end, but you could almost read them just by A, A, B, B, C. Mm-hmm. And you go, oh. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, it's it's a big light. Yeah, and it's literally through the entire Bible this way. And that makes sense because there are other, and I can't I can't name them. I just know that I've read them. But there are other uh, uh, scripture uh, verses that it's what you said. Where I I'm reading the same thing again. It's like why am I reading that again? Uh-huh. Like why do they keep repeating that? That's right. They just said that over here. Well, if you I'm can saying it again, yeah. and I'm not sure. And now this makes sense to me. So now when I come upon that, it you can take say, a step back, right? And try to find groups. Yeah, it's really hard at first. And right, it makes me think of what she said at the beginning about how you'll say something that will mm-hmm. cause us. It's like, hey, let me taste a little bit of water. I'm a thought troublemaker. Next thing you know, all this stuff that. So now it's one of those things that mm-hmm. that. It'll just, when you read the word, now I'll start looking for it. Okay. Or, or I'll go looking for it. Yeah. Or, you know. Uh-huh. That's the. All right, so I'll, I'll, start, I'll start printing them out, you know, as, as, as I can. And um, can, I, can I ask something? This was just a question. Because when you when you away. teaching Sunday and you had minded, you know, you know, God doesn't just go down the neighborhood and go, oh, those people in those houses are worthy. Do you remember when yeah, you Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. yeah. So, when he's walking down to the beach, I know they're not worthy, 
But do you think he knows that they're willing? And so then he goes. So I guess what I'm saying is, does he, well, when God wants to open something to somebody, he does it because he knows that they're willing and that they're going to accept it? Does that, am I kind of asking it? Probably a question that really can't be answered. I'm going to give you a straight answer. Okay. Yes and no. <laughs> well, it's kind of way I, 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 you know, yes I and debate, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I debated in my mind and said, well, yeah, if you're willing, then God knows you're willing because of your heart and he knows that, that anything he asks you to do, if you're willing mm-hmm. to do it. Mm-hmm. So, anyway, I don't know. That well, was, you know, that's... God looks Sorry. God looks at us mm-hmm. and he he sees that he can use. You know, I, I see a young man who's fired up. And I know if that's pointed in the wrong direction, God help us. Mm-hmm. But I know if it's pointed in the right direction, look out. You know, in, in mm-hmm. the best sense of the way. Mm-hmm. I think God saw these I think he saw Peter. Knew he had foot and mouth disease, a wild card, and goes, boy, I can use that. Mm-hmm. But I think at the same time, um, it's all God's grace, anyways. Yeah. You know, so I think yeah. I think I think this is part of God's grace. I think He makes us all with ability, and I think we could either use that ability or reject them. Good answer. And I think yeah. I think you know. God knew what he could do with them because of what was there, but he also put it there. So yes right. and no. <laughs> no, but that, 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 that doesn't make sense to it. You, God, like you said, he put it there, and he knows it's in there. That's right. And he knows it can be used. Here's another fun thought. Jesus might have known these guys. <laughs> That's a fun thought. He might have known them. Known them directly or known of them? Known them directly. Known them directly. I mean, he was, he was a blue-collar worker right. like them. Right. He grew up not far from here, mm-hmm. and he grew up in a tiny little town as a mason. Mm-hmm. All the work would have been in the major cities. See, there you go, putting it in perspective to the time and the period and the, and the job. So maybe they've met the before, thing. and maybe they knew something was different about this guy. He's seen him interact with the crowds, or, you know, now you start that, uh-huh. that, that <laughs> thing just going. I mean, he didn't grow up too far from these guys. It was only a few miles, mm-hmm. and he was a tradesman. Well, if you've ever grown up in a tiny little backwoods town, you're working outside of your tiny little backwoods town as a carpenter. <laughs> right. Right. And so when Jesus says, follow me, maybe they knew exactly what that meant. But then also the fact that he spoke to him, spoke to them using an analogy that was so perfect. Uh-huh. I will make you Would you not men. cut in the next week's study, please? <laughs> <laughs> it's true. But it's it's true, uh-huh. because they would get that. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, here you are with your net. How, how, how could you, if that's what you do mm-hmm. for a living, let me take your skill. I'm going to make you even... So really better. interesting, that's not really something a rabbi would do, according to the Bible. That is something a prophet would do. And remember when he says, who do you say that I am? He says, some call you a prophet. Who do you say that I am? I think that you're the Christ, the son of the living God. He goes, surely flesh and blood. God revealed that to you, Simon Barjona. You know? mm-hmm. um, what we see very clearly in the scriptures is when Elijah called Elisha, he called him while he was plowing his field. And immediately that was the ministry Elisha had. Mm-hmm. He was to plow tough soil to Gentiles. 
And so, you know, we, we see that this is, seems to be a little bit more of a prophet-esque type calling. When, when, if you remember when I went through the book of Jonah, Jonah has this ministry to these fishers, uh, fishermen in this boat. He's immediately reaching Gentiles reluctantly. And then, of course, that's his calling. He's called to go and reach Gentiles in Nineveh. And so this seems to be more of a calling of a prophet than it is of a rabbi. So that's a fun. Then, of course, now Jesus isn't just a Moses. Mm -hmm. He's also the best of the prophets. So you see, inside of Jesus' ministry is the best of everything the Old Testament had. So that's part of that. Yeah. <laughs> little, that was a good eye. <laughs> yeah. that's, that's, um, two things. A, this is, you said this is chiastic. Chiastic structure or chiasm. Can you spell, so is it C-H-A-S-M. Oh, C-H-I-A-S-M. C-H-I-A-S-M. So what I am impressed with, or what, in, what is impressed upon me, again, it happens so much, is that only God. Oh, I know. God. I know. Like every time you, you do this in your teachings, That's and it's like no one, no one could have thought this deeply <laughs> and had this written and and. God. It's matched the, structurally through the entire gospel. And then so far we've seen it traced through the entire story of the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you remember the numerology yeah. from chapter 1? Mm -hmm. right. So what's making chiastic structures while building upon the Old Testament while adding to perfect numbers? Mm -hmm. Who could do this? Right. Who could do this? Yeah, it's circular. It, it's... It's unbelievable. So then, going back to your question, does <laughs> oh I love this. Choose? I love this. Yeah. Yeah. He has to. He knows, he knows exactly. Well, listen, he knows what's in you, he and he knows if you have a willing heart. Right. But I think at the same time, he, he, he puts it right there so that you actually make the choice. Yes. Yeah. But he knows that you're going to, but he puts it in such a way that it's, you know, drop my net and let's go. I don't right. question. I just do. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, it's been that way when people would ask you, hey, would you, whatever it is, you know, greet at the door. Yeah, because that's in her. Yeah. It always has been in her. So, you know, and God uses somebody to ask her, knowing that yep. her hands going to go up on that. Yeah. So, well, and part of this, didn't they go out with the nets and come back with nothing? And then he said, go back out, and they came back. So, yeah, so that's, that's, um, oh, that did happen, but right. that's recorded elsewhere in the scriptures, right, but that right, is right. what happened. And Peter falls on his knees, you know, but it's interesting. We have to understand, is the, are the gospels contradicting each other, or are they just saying different things? Well, they're communicating different things, because obviously Matthew uh, is aware of what was written in Mark. <laughs> uh, you know, and, and, and these, these guys know. And Luke, I think it's in Luke where he shows the hall of the fish. He says, why well, don't you throw the nut on the other side? Right. It's like, Jesus, I'm a professional fisherman. Yeah. You have no, you're a teacher? <laughs> but sure. And he throws the, and they get, almost breaks the boat, yeah. you know. Um, and then that's when he falls on his knees and says, depart from me, or I'm a sinful man. He says, well, I have to read the whole thing again. I, mean, <laughs> I read it once. I got, to, I got to keep reading it because I've got to put it all together. I'll t for me, oh, I, I read the gospel every day. Yeah. 
I, I read all over, but I read the gospel every day. And when I start at Matthew, I end at John, and I start back over. I've been doing that for a decade. Mm-hmm. Every day I read the gospel. Because yeah. if you got that, you got the whole thing. Right. That's the that that's to me the my my thing. So I. And the great thing is, is what sticks. Oh. Like that stuck. <laughs> that stuck with you. You know, mm-hmm. you remember that specifically, and that stuck with you. And I love how different. Oh yeah. Different scripture sticks to different people at different times. The thing is, if I walk, if nothing else, I would walk out of here tonight. The chasm and me looking at you know finding this sandwich. Yeah. That'll, that'll just stick. Yeah. For whatever reason. Yeah. You know? And then you realize it's God is putting emphasis in places for us. Because mm-hmm. we can only hold so much. You know? Mm-hmm. We can only hold so much. I lose a lot yeah. more than I hold. Yeah. yeah. But how great if, it, if you can picture it. Yes. You know, that's, I think, is what's really helpful. Right. Absolutely. That's so terrific. All right, verse 12. <laughs> uh, is anyone... Does anyone have a hard 7.30 stop? No. Okay. No. If someone's like, we're running a little long, I can do it. I'm at home, so you can do it. <laughs> oh, yeah, right? I know, you got such a long drive. <laughs> now, when they, uh, uh, for, by the record, and I love when everyone's here. This has been my favorite one. I love that we could just chat. This has been wonderful. <laughs> Me too. Yeah. Uh, now when tell the we won't, well, it's being recorded too oh. bad. <laughs> <laughs> I love you all so much. Uh, <laughs> Edit. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, Mark Patey, please edit this out. Um, now, when he had heard that John had been arrested, verse 12, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in the city, uh, in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So first, Jesus goes, he leaves the temple area. I talked about this on Sunday. Uh, he leaves the Judean wilderness, which is right down the way from Jerusalem. And Jesus leaves Jerusalem to start his ministry, which almost seems paradoxical. Uh, but he, he leaves, God leaves the city of God to be go be God somewhere else because God's not welcomed in the temple and the city of God. So Jesus goes to Capernaum and that's where he sets up his home base for his ministry in the north. And we, we went to Israel just before the pandemic, and I do want to go again. Um, we went to Capernaum, and it is beautiful. Mm-hmm. This is a beautiful palm trees, be- right on the water, beautiful water. And when we were there, you know, they had excavated the old city of Capernaum, which was like all rubble at this point. Um, but they had they they had the outer wall all dug up, and it's a big city. I mean, it was it was pretty, it was pretty big. And uh, Peter's house, they said they found Peter's house. Did they find Peter's house? I doubt it. But the Catholic Church uh, did what it did, and they built a castle on top of Peter's house because when I want to go see Peter's house, I want to go see the castle. Mm-hmm. So you know, they built this thing on top and it looked like a spaceship over top of Peter's house. Um, anyways, we were there. Beautiful, beautiful area. Anyways, the area of Galilee and all those surrounding cities, Galilee was a borderland for northern Israel, meaning it was a really tough place to live. In antiquity, it was often raided by invaders like the Assyrians in 733, and by Jesus' day, the region had become a cultural melting pot. Uh, it was it was a Jewish area, but a Jewish area that was about 50% Gentile. 
So here we are in Israel. It's 50% Jewish, 50% Greek, Gentile. Uh, and Galilee, of course, had a nickname that Matthew talks. He points it out here. He called Galilee of the Gentiles. That's not a warm nickname to the Jewish people. <laughs> that's a dig. Yeah. You know, that that's, you know, that's the ghetto of Israel or whatever, you know, name you want to give. It was the bad place. Uh, so well, it was an area that wasn't fully Gentile, but it wasn't fully Jewish either. Uh, and this area drew all kinds of people, and primarily because it sat on the Via Maris. Does anyone know what the Via Maris is? It was one of the main Roman trade routes in the Roman Empire. And this Via Maris, it ran, instead of go. you would think when you look at a picture of the Mediterranean, the Via Maris would go right down the coast, right around the water, right? Why would it cut through inland a little bit, down the Sea of Galilee and then back in? Well, it's because there were all these cliffs in the way. So it actually was easier to go through Galilee and then back on um, to Caesarea, which is, which is on the Mediterranean. So it actually jets into the land a little bit to avoid the, the mountain passes. And the point being, all Roman trade heading to Africa ran through this area of little old Israel. <laughs> it ran right through this region, specifically right through Capernaum. Now, Jesus, there's, there's, they say there were around 200 towns around the Sea of Galilee. I think that's a, an overestimate. But even if it's a quarter of that, there's 50 towns. Mm -hmm. There's a reason Jesus chose Capernaum. <laughs> this is not accidental. Jesus is going to use not Jerusalem, but this region as the home base for his ministry. And one of the things, remember the story where the woman has the demon-possessed daughter? And she's a, she's... Yep. And Jesus seems like she, he's almost mean to her. You know what I'm talking about? She's like, my daughter's demon-possessed. And he goes, uh, yeah, and he goes, uh, you know, I'm not here. Right, she was a Gentile. And he says, you know, am I to throw my dogs the scraps to the dogs? And he says, yes, but even the puppies get the scraps from the master's table. He says, surely I haven't seen a faith like this woman's in all of Israel. Um, and for the record, just in case anyone struggled with that passage, Jesus was testing her like he tested everyone else. And she, she was proven to be wise, typically much more wiser than the Jewish scholars that had just rejected him. Oh, yeah. Uh, Master, I've done all things. I've kept all the commandments. Jesus says, there's one thing you lack. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor. Okay, Couldn't do it. It was a test, and he failed. Um, so, the, you know, Jesus was testing the, this person. Um, so anyways, um, <clears throat> Jesus, if you notice, he had an emphasis on the Jewish people. He even said so to that woman in Mark, you know, I, I'm here to reach the Jewish people. But Jesus also made sure that he put his camp right next to the Jewish, the, to the Gentile highway of all trade. And he made sure that people from all over the world got to hear and feel his message. Um, and of course, as we keep reading, we're, we're going to see that's true. Who came? We're not going to read that. We did in the chiasm, but not, not for the study's sake. The first people it says who came to him were the Syrians. People from all these different regions immediately flock to Jesus. When Jesus is dealing with both Jewish people and Samaritans, the Samaritans are the ones that are always flocking to him. We, there's all these, Jesus specifically set out to reach the Jewish people, and consistently it's the Gentiles who fall in love with him. 
consistently. And so, but Jesus parks himself right in the center of Gentile travel, Gentile trade. And he makes sure that all these people from all walks of life hear his uh, message, which of course Matthew clues us into when he puts those four Gentile women in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. There's clues here. Jesus is reaching Gentiles. This isn't just the Jewish Jesus. Uh, you know, he, he's here for all people. Um, and so Jesus puts himself in a place that he would be highly effective. Doesn't Paul do the same exact things? He goes to key cities to reach areas. He goes to key port cities to go to areas. And what I think we can gather from the geography here, couldn't Jesus have put himself anywhere and his ministry have taken off? (laughs) He could have went to the Tibetan hills (laughs) and there would be a mega church up there, no problem. But I think what we see is Jesus also uses a strategy to place himself at a place where he could reach lots of different kinds of people. Paul does the same thing. So here's my point. Sharing the gospel is supernatural. I can't make anyone receive. However, the, the intellectual part, when God saves us, he calls all of our intellect too. And we are to strategize as, as to how to be most effective. That's one of the things I love about your wife. You know, she put scripture in every corner of this house for a reason. You're not sitting anywhere in this house not realizing what this is built for. <laughs> well, and I don't know. No, no, no. When, you know, because we always pray, you know, like people come to our house and work or whatever, and you, you don't know if they read something and for some reason Never they know. just take that with them. Because, you know, I can say a thousand words. That's right. But that right there is what will we'll mm-hmm. go in the end mm-hmm. of the year. So, yeah. Well, even if you're just good to people and they've seen that on the wall, they know what that goodness comes from. Mm-hmm. And that it, sticks. It sticks. It sticks. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there's a way that we can strategize to be more effective and to be intentional about it. You know, mm-hmm. I, I think sometimes we can try to manipulate and try to get God moving, which mm. isn't good. Mm. But we could also go so far the other way and go, well, God's got to do it. You know, right. well, wait a second now. You know, there needs to be some intentionality here. Right. Um, <clears throat> I want to read to you a, a little passage here. Today's of all sorts of firsts. Um, this is a book I read <laughs> maybe a decade ago called Sitting at the Feet of Rabbi Jesus. Um it's a killer book, by the way. So Very. You recommend I would recommend it, and and with any recommendation I give, I don't necessarily say I agree with a hundred percent of everything that's in it. Uh, if you're the kind of person that can not be swayed by everything you read, then yeah, go for it totally. Um, it's been so long, I can't say that I know specifically what I didn't like at the time, but it's a really good book. It's it Sitting at the Feet of Rabbi Jesus. There's also Walking in the Dusk of Rabbi Jesus, which was our second volume of this. It wasn't as good. I read it. It was, it was okay, but this is the good one. Anyway, uh, Anne Spangleberg and Lois Treberg. I don't know. Poor gals having those last names. Spangleberg. Anne Spangleberg. So here we go. Israel's own journey through the wilderness is brought vividly to mind every summer. For six months, and this is modern day Israel and as far as ancient Israel, between May and October, not a drop of rain falls. So that by mid-fall, when the feast of Sukkot 
uh, Sukkot is observed, the land is parched and dry. The lush spring greenery has shriveled and died. No wonder, then, that Sukkot was the time to pray that God would send living water or rain for the coming year. About uh, one out of four years, the rains were late or not plentiful enough for good yields, so rain was critical. Was a critical need and a common worry at that time of year. It was easy for people to remember how dependent on God they had been in the desert of Sinai, which is pretty fascinating. But here's the good bit. Uh, how does the Feast of Tabernacles figure into the life of Jesus? Now, on the last day of the feast, the priests performed a water a libation ceremony accompanied by passionate prayers for life-giving water in the form of rain. And at that point, the joyful voices of thousands of worshipers reached a thunderous intensity. One rabbi commented, anyone who has not seen a Shemak bit Yehoshua, what well, probably butchered that, the water drawing ceremony has never seen joy in this life at all. And now this is the really good part. It was on this last and great, greatest day of Sukkot that Jesus stood up in the midst of the clamorous crowds while they're all in a fever pitch praying for rain and shouted, let anyone who is thirsty me come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Isn't that fascinating? You know that scene where they say, Jesus, don't go to Jerusalem. They're out to get you. And, he, and then he shows up in the middle of this ceremony. It was a water ceremony. They're all praying for water for days. And they're, they're there, they're huddling and go, oh God, Hashemad, you know, they're doing their thing. And Jesus stands up and goes, anyone who needs water, here I am. <laughs> this was very intentional. Mm. Pretty provocative too. Mm. But Jesus, Jesus again, he was he was he could have given that message anywhere and it would have bared fruit. But he used the most strategic time possible to bear the most fruit. Even God had to do that. And so we, we, we have to make sure that we're being very intentional about where we place ourselves, when we place ourselves, and what we say where we're placed. You know, there has to be some strategy involved in the advancement of the gospel. And of course, you know, back to he called people when they were fish, you throwing their nets. You know, he wants, you know, when God calls us, we all have different skill sets and he wants us to use our skills. You know, there's an intentionality there. You know, me, I love to cook. So I have people over and I cook <laughs> as much as I can. And I try to reach them with the guy, you know, as best as I can and show them what a godly husband and a father is, and, you know, these sorts of things. Um, so anyways, you know, we should be more intentional here as I think what we're seeing from Jesus as he places himself in Capernaum. Does this make sense? Okay, anything before we move on? We're one verse in, we're really moving. Um, <laughs> I didn't say this on Sunday either. This is all new. <laughs> and leaving Naphtali, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region of the shadow of death on them, a light has dawned. We're done our reading. Um, Matthew says Jesus' coming was the fulfillment of prophecy and quotes Isaiah chapter 9. However... 
Isaiah chapter 9, specifically verses 1 and 2, which is what Matthew quotes from, has a context, and I think it would be really helpful if we read it. Uh, So that's going to be in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 16. You could turn there, you could listen, either way. Bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. (coughs) I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob and I will hope in him. So, behold, the people in darkness have seen a great light. The context of that begins with God is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. Who's the house of Jacob? Well, Jacob was the father of 12 kids who are the 12 tribes of Israel. And so this prophecy that a light has come, according to Isaiah, God, um, the light coming to the darkness was also a symbol that darkness was in Israel. And so, so Matthew is telling us as we connect Isaiah 9 to what the, what's happening in Matthew 4 is Jesus fled into northern Galilee to Galilee of the Gentiles because God's face has been set against the house of Jacob. And so this tells us what's happening in Jerusalem at this time. There's a hardness of heart that's happening. Uh, Verse 18, Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwell on Mount Zion. So God's presence still partially at the temple in Jesus' day, but when the temple veil was torn, it was a sign that God's presence had been totally removed from Temple Mount. Uh, And so you'll see some Christians and they get really into Israel you know, um, they're wearing, you know, the, 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 the star of David and they're memorizing the Hebrew prayers. I mean, I can't say there's anything wrong with that, but they also get really in a fever pitch about the new temple. I don't know if you've ever run across anyone like this. Mm-hmm. It's like, why? <laughs> God's spirit will not dwell in that temple. We are God's temple. The veil was torn. God ripped the temple in two because that temple no longer mattered. God's temple's with us. And so what we see is God's temple, his spirit still, you know, God's um, still partially there, but, but the removal's coming. Verse 19, and when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living to the teaching and to the testimony? If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. Uh, they will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upwards. And they will look to the earth, but behold, the stress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Here the people of the land will turn their face against the king and their God. Who's this a picture of? Jesus, the Father and Son. Um, now, Isaiah 9.1, and this is where Matthew quotes from, but, and that but connects us to what we just read. Uh, but there will be no groom, uh, gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former times he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in latter times he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, and those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them has the light shone. 
Um, we're done, Isaiah. Uh, first of all, has anyone ever listened to Handel's Messiah? Have you, you know, you know the, have you know the people that walk in darkness? Do you know that song? Like, can you recall it? It sounds like people are tiptoeing through the dark. I don't, no one needs to know that, but it's a really cool, if you ever listen to Handel's Messiah, he has the people who walk in darkness. And every time I read it, I can't help but to hear it. It sounds like an elephant pitter pattering kind of stumbling around in the darkness. And then it crescendos into the light has come. It's really beautiful. Uh, anyways, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, so we ran through the missional strategy here, um, uh, but uh, there's also a historical component to Galilee as Jesus's home base. So we ran through the technical, the the structural, the um, the the missional wisdom in placing himself right along the Via Maris. But there's also a biblical historical reason he plants himself in Capernaum. Um, there's a commentary on Matthew called the Opus Imperfectum. Uh, what's really cool about it, they have no idea who wrote it. <laughs> they think it was written in the early 500s in Latin. Uh, and what's upsetting is the commentary is incredible. I mean, this commentary is something else. They translated it in English for me, thank God. Uh, but the manu but the manuscripts that have survived, uh, several chapters are missing from the book, and they think they're lost forever. Uh, it, the, 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 the manuscript abruptly ends at Matthew 25. So Matthew 26, 27, and 28 are missing, along with a few chapters here uh, and there, which is why it's called the Opus Imperfectum, the work incomplete. Uh, and a cool little story here uh, from the 1200s. Uh, has anyone ever heard of a guy called Thomas Aquinas? Uh, Thomas Aquinas. Um, I think there's a lot of problems with Thomas Aquinas' theology, but he's also very brilliant and has lots of really good things to say as well. Um, but when St. Thomas Aquinas in the 1200s was approaching Paris, a fellow traveler pointed out all the lovely buildings gracing the city. Aquinas was impressed to be sure, but he sighed and stated that he would rather have the complete opus imperfectum on Matthew than be the mayor of Paris itself. So as Aquinas is going into Paris and they're looking at all the grand buildings, he sighs because he wants the rest of these chapters. That's how important this book uh, was. So it's quite a work. Well, in the Opus Imperfectum, which I was reading for this, uh, the author pointed out that these northern tribes of Israel and Zebulun and Naphtali were the first peoples to be exiled by the Babylonians. And he writes, and this is, I think this is really cool, quote, Most aptly then, the mercy of the Lord visited first those whom the wrath of God has struck before all the rest. And those who are first to be led into bodily captivity were themselves led back earlier from their spiritual captivity. Isn't that cool? What, what, what he means is, God judged this region of Galilee first. And in God's grace, they will be the first ones to receive God's mercy uh, in Jesus' coming. Uh, first dragged into bodily captivity. The first dragged into bodily captivity are the first to be saved from spiritual captivity under the legalism and paganism that so troubled this region. So this people who have seen a great light 
has a double meaning. It, it seems to mean that the great light, the Christ, uh, is starting his ministry here to bring light to a people who are in darkness. And this means both the Jews, primarily, and first and foremost, but also the Gentiles. So we have this, the sunrise begins at the least expected place, not in Jerusalem. It begins in Galilee of the Gentiles, which is just not where you would expect. And it's here that God comes not only because it's most strategic to reach the most amount of people, but because they were the first people to come under the judgment. And God makes sees to it that they are the first people to come under his grace. Mm-hmm. I think that's really, really sweet mm-hmm. of God. Um, I just, I wish I had more to say on that, but I don't. It just hit me so heavy. Um, you know what? Isaiah 3, I, I'm sorry, Isaiah 9, 3. I'm not done reading. I lied. Uh <laughs> You have multiplied the nations. Um, So Matthew laid out that the Syrians, the Decapolis, the Samaritans, and the nations follow Jesus. Remember in the the second A that we saw? The light came to northern Israel, and northern Israel and the nations accepted them. So that's who received that great light. For you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. And, and as Jesus healed, it says, all these people, can you imagine the rejoicing that must have happened in his I would pay any amount of money to see him do that. You know, sick kids, the demon-possessed, the paralyzed, the people in... Crutch, you know, boom, uh, incredible. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Now, uh, really, really take take in verse 5 through 7 here. And remember, this is part of the context of the quote that Jesus says. Or the, this is part of what Jesus is fulfilling here. So, mm-hmm. so whenever we see a, a, an old, a quote in the New Testament from the Old Testament, we have to understand typically there's a whole lot more around that verse that's part of this, that quotation. Isaiah 9, 5, for every boot of the tramping warrior uh, in battle, tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, we should know this, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And here Matthew is introducing us that Jesus and the Father are one, isn't he? (laughs) If he's Everlasting Father. Mm -hmm. Uh, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. There goes uh, Jesus wasn't political. (laughs) There it is. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. As we close, Matthew's telling us a whole lot of stuff here. uh, But I'd like to point out three quickly. First, Israel and the house of Jacob is going to turn against the king and God. Now, studying what we have studied in these last four chapters, this should be no surprise to us. 
as to what Matthew's saying, as I've shown us what Matthew's been saying about, about Israel. Um, again, but Matthew wants us to know where the story's headed. A really helpful way to think about the four Gospels is they are all passion narratives with long introductions. A passion narrative, by passion narrative, I mean um, Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. All four Gospels, ultimately, that's just where they're getting to, the death of Jesus Christ. So the, all four Gospels are passion narratives with long introductions. Everything before Passion Week is just leading to Passion Week. And here Matthew and Matthew chapter 4 is already telling us they're going to hate him. By the time he goes south, they're going to hate him. When he walks into Jerusalem, the house of Jacob has set their face against the king and against their God. They are going to hate Jesus when he comes. And of course, one of the apexes to this in my mind, I, I can't say it is scripturally, again, opinion. Um, Jesus literally raises a man from the dead, Lazarus. And when you read that passage, it says he only won some of the crowd. Half the people saw Lazarus raised from the dead, and they were furious. If you can't raise someone from the dead without gaining enemies, you know, you're at a point of something's got to break here. And, of course, that's as he's heading into Passion Week there. So they're going to reject um, Jesus. But interesting, hasn't Matthew been showing us that Jesus is, not, is also the new Moses? He, he escaped the death of Pharaoh as he escaped the death of Herod, remember? Moses escaped in the, in the little basket down the Nile. Mm -hmm. Jesus escaped by being whisked away to Egypt. Mm -hmm. um, Jesus uh, br uh, went through the Red Sea crossing. He's gathering people. He's going to give a new law on Mount Sinai. Again, all these signs, Jesus is the bread of life. He makes brings manna from heaven, so to speak. There's all these Moses-type pictures in the life of Jesus. And what is Jerusalem in, pictured as? It's been a new Egypt. So here we're going to see that the, that the Israelites have become the Egyptians, and they're going to oppose the new Moses. So all of these themes are going to connect as we, as we keep marching here. Secondly, the people in darkness seem to be both the Jews and the Gentiles, uh, but the Jews specifically, those outside of commonplace Israel. Um. <clears throat> Let's see. No, I don't want to share that. We got to keep going here. I'm going to do it anyways. Okay. <laughs> if the house of Jacob, north, southern Israel, Jerusalem, is going to reject Jesus, how will northern Israel, Zebulun, Naphtali, and Galilee accept him? Well, as we look at verse 23, my phone is going, I'm in one of these prayer chats, and sometimes they just ding, 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 ding. Um, <laughs> which I shouldn't be complaining about prayer groups. See, there you go. You got a, a bad example from me there. <laughs> Just give me an hour. Um, uh, verse 23, oh, uh, I'll, I'll skip down to 24. And it says, And his fame spread throughout all Syria. And they brought him all the sick and those afflicted with various diseases and pains and those oppressed by demons, having both seizures and paralytics. And he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee. There we have a lot of Jewish people. And the Decapolis, there's a lot of Greeks. And from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. So clearly, <coughs> people are coming from all over to accept Jesus. Again, 
Just like John the Baptist, remember people were leaving Jerusalem to go get baptized mm-hmm. by him in the J- Jordan? Now people are leaving Jerusalem to go to an even more scandalous place, Galilee of the Gentiles, to get close to God. Can you imagine what this would do to the Pharisees working in the temple? Mm-hmm. You're going to Galilee to get closer to God? What's wrong with you? You know, uh, this is a grand betrayal. Also, we see that a lot of Syrians, there's a specific note here to the Syrians coming coming to to God. Again, we just read it. And since you opened the door, I'm going to walk through it. Um, He he called Pete, James, uh, you know, the the, the fishermen um, who were casting the net says, come be fishers of men. Again, that was very much like Elijah throwing his cloak over Elisha. Okay. Do you remember there was a specific story in the story of, of Elisha where a famous Syrian came to him, Naaman, who needed to be baptized. And, and he received counsel from Syria. All these people in Syria knew that there was a godly man in Israel, and they knew it was Elisha. And they came to him, and he says, go dip yourself seven times in the Jordan River. And of course, Naaman dips himself in the Jordan River, and he's cleansed. And here we see all these Syrians coming to the new man of God in northern Israel, and they're being cleansed. They're being clean. So I think maybe there's a connection to, to Naaman, uh, the, the, the general here, the Syrian, uh, which might be possible. Um, so what we see is the house of Jacob will reject Jesus, but the outcast of Jacob are going to reflect uh, flock to him. Um, so notice it says who's coming to Jesus. It's all those who are sick. <laughs> it's those with wounds, those with with demons, those with sores. If you notice, these are the very people that were the outcasts of Israel. Uh, One of the things that studying history is helpful for, if you were sick, you were not allowed to worship in the temple of God. You were not allowed to approach God. You You were considered unclean. People think that because they were full of sins, that's why, you know, like you were... You're a sinful man, so that's probably why you're sick. Sure, sure. Yeah, well, yeah, there was karma in yeah. that system, yeah. Get it out right. Well, sure, and, and so people that were sick were derided as, you must be a sinner. Yeah, you, Whose parents sin? sin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's it. Lord, who sinned them or their parents, I think they, they asked the question. Yeah. Um, but, but for example, um, if you had leprosy, you had to live in a leprosy camp. You couldn't come near God. Um uh, shepherds were considered thieves because sheep ate grass as they wandered. Well, it may not always be your land. So they were stealing people's lands as their sheep ate up grass. So they were considered thieves that weren't allowed to come to the temple. Now we have people with sores and diseases and they weren't allowed to go to the temple. If you had some sort of ailment and you sat on a seat at the temple... You then contaminated that seat, and anyone who sat on that seat after you have now contaminated and God is unpleased with. So these people were barred fr- from coming to God. This is the this is the scary part with the woman with the blood. Remember, she was mm-hmm. hemorrhaging blood, yeah. and she's pushing through the crowds of right. people. And he says, who touched me? And they're like, Lord, everyone's touching. He goes, no, 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 I felt power leave me. Someone touched me on purpose. And you can you imagine how scared that woman must have been mm-hmm. to be like, I just touched 50 people to come to you, you know, God. You know, that that was a big offense. She just made a lot of people unclean. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But of course, God's cleanliness cleanses our uncleanness, not our uncleanliness makes God dirty. Uh, that's also the story with the Good Samaritan. You notice it says a, a, a rabbi, a priest, a Levite, all these people are passing him because what happens if they touch this man to help him and he dies? They then be, they have to, they, they become contaminated for seven days. Well, the, the, the road to Jericho is on the way to the temple. So maybe they would have had to quarantine outside of this feast to, to do their duty. So again, there were all these uncleanliness laws. Well, who's coming to God here? All these people who aren't allowed to go to the temple. Again, Jesus has to leave the temple of God in order to act like God. Because <laughs> he can't do it in Jerusalem. They won't let him. Um, and so Jesus is healing all the outcasts of Israel. Um, this is a big uh, clue to the parable of the wedding feast in Luke 14. But he said to him, a man once gave a great banquet, invited many, and at the time for the banquet, he sent a servant to say to those who had been invited, come for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out to see it. Please have me excused. You know the story? Mm -hmm. You would never buy a field without first knowing what it looked like. This is a lie. Mm -hmm. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. You would never buy five oxen without first seeing it. It's like saying, I went and bought a Lamborghini. I got to go make sure it turns on. You know what? <laughs> Please have me excused. Uh, and another said, I have married a wife, therefore I can't want uh, come. This is the worst one of all. He's essentially saying, I'm in the middle of consummating my marriage. I'm a little busy. Um, <laughs> so not only is he a liar, he's also crude. He's a crude liar. Uh, and also, he doesn't say, please have me excused at all. He's just a flat-out jerk. Uh, so the servant came and reported these things to his master, and the master of the house became very angry. Are you seeing the parallels here? There's all these people who have been invited to the kingdom, have been invited to the feast, but they don't want any part of it. Mm -hmm. And he said to them, to his servant, go quickly to the streets and the lanes and the cities and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. Do you see the same exact thing happening here in Matthew 4? Now, fine. If, if the people who have been invited don't want to come, the temples doesn't want to come, the priests don't want to come, the clergy don't want to come, go and get those that you don't deem worthy to be part of this at all. Go get the crippled. Go get the more sores, the better. <laughs> go get them and bring them in. And that's exactly who Jesus is drawn to himself right now. And then it says, verse 22, and the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded uh, has been done, and there is still still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and the hedges, you see in the connection, and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. And here the Gentiles are now talked about in the highways and hedges. If God's people, the Jewish people, were not going to come into the banquet, and for no good reason. Right. And God was going to bring in the outcast, and he was going to bring out the outer outcasts, the Gentiles, and they were going to come to the feast. And so this is exactly what this parallels. And this is exactly what happened with the trajectory of Israel. First, the outcasts of Israel was accepted, and then eventually all of Israel completely rejected the Messiah as they stood the stoning of Stephen, uh, and they ended up branching out into Asia Minor and eventually Rome and North Africa, and Thomas went down to India, and the church accepted 
exploded through the highways and byways. The kingdom was going to be filled, and if it was going to be filled with outcasts and Gentiles, so be it. Uh, the third final thing, and this is a quick point, um, I love Isaiah 9.5. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle, tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. I love that. Um, here we see that the gospel brings peace. The gospel brings peace. You know, you ever heard someone talk about how Radical Christianity is dangerous. We're hearing a lot now about Christian nationalism, and I don't even know what they mean by that. But, you know, they talk about fundamental Christians as dangerous people. We, we have to understand it took a, th and then, you know, a lot of times they'll point to the Crusades. Look what happens if we hit a Christian state. It took a thousand years to distort the teachings of Christ so bad to start killing people with it. A thousand years to distort. And ultimately, you know, and if we want to compare, say, Islam and Christianity, ultimately, if you look to the apex of Islam, you have Muhammad the prophet, who was a caravaner, a marauder. He slaughtered people when we go, who, who slaughtered his enemies. When we go to the apex of Christianity, our ultimate model, it's Jesus Christ who dies for his enemies. The, the apex of, of how we are to live are people that lay their lives down for the betterment of others. This, this is a very peaceful religion. Uh, and thinking of our story, this Galilee, this border town has been, this is a tense place to live, Galilee. Mm. This is a tough racially hostile, contentious area. Uh, but as the people accept Jesus, the garments rolled in blood are burned as fuel for the fire. Uh, as the people accept Jesus as the Messiah, the old wars and divisions between the people start to get burned up. The, the Hatfields and McCoys of Galilee, the, the, the hatchet starts to get buried, so to speak. I love what Paul says, For as many of you are baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ. The more we follow our king, the more our bloody garments and war boots are burned in the fire. And I just love that that mental picture. Of course, that that expands. You know, I, I've I've been in enough Christian circles now where I've sat with, grabbed coffee with people from Africa and Asia, and when I see a brother in Christ, we just get along, mm -hmm. and we are a worlds apart in what we like, what we do. But but there's a peace, there's a harmony there. We have the same blood. <laughs> um. um but, but thinking of our own lives, Jesus is very clear on this ourselves. Uh, you remember, you remember in, in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is on his way to the temple, and 
he looks around and he comes back and then he goes again and he curses the fig tree and he goes in and he comes out and the Pharisees see the fig tree was destroyed. And they're like, wow, you destroyed a fig tree. And Jesus is just kind of like, the fig tree is what you're amazed about. <laughs> and he says, surely I say to you, you could say to this mountain, be uprooted and thrown into the sea and it would be done for you. And he's pointing at Temple Mount. He's pointing at the the mountain that the temple sat on and the sea that they can see from where they're standing was the Dead Sea. You could throw Jerusalem into the Dead Sea is essentially what he's saying. But then he gives a little caveat and he, and he, and he says essentially, and I'm paraphrasing here, I should have written it down, but I failed. Uh, he says essentially, but you need to forgive if you're not someone who has not forgiven others their trespasses, do not come to me and expect your prayers to be answered. Mm-hmm. I think that's in Mark 11 or 13, something like that. And and 1 John 2, whoever hates his brother is in darkness. He will walk in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. God is very clear. We need to be a people of peace if we're going to be at peace with God. <laughs> And that's a really tough pill to swallow mm-hmm. when you've lived life long enough to get burned. <laughs> mm-hmm. Because there are people, you know, I, mm-hmm. if someone said, hey, do you want to sit down with your absolute worst enemy for lunch tomorrow? I'd be like, oh, God, no, thank you. Right. You know, uh, but that's not necessarily peace. You know, you don't need to be buddy-buddy, but there does also need to be a removal of bitterness and forgiveness mm-hmm. here. And here we see immediately what what Matthew is showing us in Galilee of the Gentiles. These people have hated each other for hundreds of years. And here they all in one moment are uniting and rallying under one single guy. Mm -hmm. And all of that beef, all of that trouble, all of that contentiousness, it died right then and there when they accepted the king. And every believer has to fall under that. There is no exemption. Bloody garments and yeah, our, our, our bloody garments and our war boots got to be burned in the fire. Mm-hmm. It's just the way it has to be. Again, we don't need to be buddy-buddy with our enemies, so to speak. But we need to make peace, at least within ourselves. Mm-hmm. Within ourselves. Yeah. And we can't, you know, and odds are the people that we have most bump heads with also have problems with us and maybe they feel very justified in their problems with us mm-hmm. and maybe they're not ready to forgive you know uh, the peace that we make is not predicated upon their response it's just it's between us and the lord and say god i'm, I'm done harboring these feelings mm-hmm. and if they too are christians then praise god you know maybe we can have some actual peace but until then you know and so we we, we see immediately those that those tensions those old bitter battle lines are burned in the fire, which is just awesome. (laughs) You've been listening to Calvary Baltimore's Harford County Bible Study. If you'd like to get in touch or come visit us at Calvary Baltimore, head to calvarychapelbaltimore.org for service times and directions. If you have a prayer request or you just want to say hi, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at calvary.faithlife at gmail.com. If you've been blessed by today's teaching and would like to donate to the work that God is doing through Calvary Baltimore, go to our website at calvarychapelbaltimore.org and click Donate Now. Pastor Josh and all of us at Calvary Baltimore consider it a blessing to serve you. We hope you'll join us again for the next edition of the Calvary Baltimore Harford County Bible Study.